Welcome back to 1001 Stories from the Old West. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, and this week we're going to be concluding our series on Billy the Kid and the Lincoln County Wars. Now, I do want to make note that there will be some times when the author refers to himself because Charlie Seringo participated in the final manhunt for Billy the Kid. So there are times when he refers to himself as the author or the writer. That's really one of the beauties of this. This is a first-hand account of one of the lawmen hunting Billy the Kid. So anyway, super excited. Let's see how this thing finishes up. Without further ado, here we go. On one of his first trips to Fort Sumner, Billy the Kid fell desperately in love with a pretty little 17-year-old half-breed Mexican girl whom we will call Miss Dulcinea del Toboso. She was a daughter of a once famous man and a sister to a man who owned sheep on a thousand hills. The falling in love with this pretty young miss was virtually the cause of Billy the Kid's death. As up to the last, he hovered around Fort Sumner like a moth around a blazing candle. He had no thought of getting his wings singed. He couldn't resist the temptation of visiting this pretty little miss. During the month of September 1878, the kid and part of his gang visited the town of Lincoln and on leaving there stole a large band of fine range horses from Charlie Fritz and others. This band of horses was driven to Fort Sumner, thence east to Tascosa in the wild panhandle of Texas on the Canadian River. While disposing of these horses to the cattlemen and cowboys, the kid and his gang camped for several weeks at the LX Cattle Ranch, 20 miles below Tascosa. During many visits to Tascosa, where whiskey was plentiful, the kid never got drunk. He seemed to drink more sociably than for the love of liquor. Here, Henry Brown and Fred Wyatt quit the kid's outlaw gang and went to the Chickasaw Nation in the Indian Territory, where the parents of half-breed Fred Wyatt lived. Henry Brown became city marshal of Caldwell, Kansas, and, while wearing his star, rode to the nearby town of Medicine Lodge with three companions and in broad daylight held up the bank, killing the president and his cashier. This put an end to Henry Brown as the enraged citizens mobbed the whole band of bad men. Snow had begun to fly when the kid and the remnant of his gang returned to Fort Sumner, New Mexico. One of his followers, John Middleton, had sworn off being an outlaw and rode away from Tascosa for southern Kansas, where he settled down to a peaceful life. The kid made his headquarters at Fort Sumner, so as to be near his sweetheart. In the month of February 1879, the kid and his party rode to Lincoln to use their influence in a peaceful way to liberate some of their friends, held by the U.S. Army, whom Captain Hooker intended to turn over to the new sheriff of Lincoln County. In Lincoln, the kid met his former chum, Jesse Evans, and they started out to celebrate the meeting. With Jesse Evans was a desperado named William Campbell. One night, a lawyer named Chapman, who had been sent from Las Vegas, New Mexico, to settle up the McSween estate, was in the saloon. When Campbell shot at his feet to make him dance, the lawyer protested indignantly and was summarily shot dead by Campbell. Jimmy Dolan and Billy Matthews, being present, were later arrested, along with Campbell, for this killing. 
Dolan and Matthews came clear at the preliminary trial, and Campbell was bound over to the grand jury. He was taken to Fort Stanton and placed in jail. There he made his escape and has never been heard of in that part of the country since. Now Billy the Kid and Tom O'Follier rode back to Fort Sumner, but soon returned to Lincoln, where they were arrested by Sheriff Kimbrell and his deputies, merely as a matter of performing their duty, but with no intention of disgracing them. They were turned over to Deputy Sheriff T.P. Longworth and guarded in the home of Don Juan Patron, where they were wined and dined. On March 21, 1879, Deputy Sheriff Longworth received orders to place his two prisoners in the town jail, a filthy hole. Arriving at the jail door, the kid told Mr. Longworth that he had been in this jail once before and he swore he would never go into it again, but to avoid making trouble, he would go back on his pledge. On a pine door to one of the cells, the kid wrote with his pencil, William Bonney was incarcerated first time, December 22, 1878. Second time, March 21, 1879. And I hope I never will be again. W.H. Bonney. We are going to take a brief break to hear a word from our sponsors. And now, back to the history of Billy the Kid, written by Charles A. Seringo. This inscription showed on the old jail door for many years after it was written. The first time the kid was put in this jail, he walked right out, and the second time, he broke down the door when he got ready to go. After breaking out of the jail, the kid and O'Folliard spent a couple weeks in Lincoln carrying their rifles whenever they walked through the street in plain view of the sheriff. In April, they returned to Fort Sumner. Jesse Evans had left for the Lower Pecos, where he was later killed, according to reports. The summer was spent by the kid and his followers stealing cattle and horses. In October, they went to Roswell and stole 118 head of John Chisholm's fattest steers and later sold them to Colorado beef buyers. The kid claimed that Chisholm owed him for fighting his battles during the Lincoln County War, and he was using this method to get his pay. From now on, for the next year, the kid and his gang did a wholesale business in stealing cattle. Tom Cooper and his gang had joined issues with the kid and party, and they established headquarters at the Portales Lake, a salty body of water at the foot of the Staked Plains, about 75 miles east of Fort Sumner. Here, a permanent camp was pitched against a cliff of rock at a freshwater spring, and it afterward became noted as Billy the Kid's Cave. A rock wall had been built against the cliff to take in the spring and afforded protection as a fort in case of a surprise from Indians or law officers. They had the whole country to themselves as there were no inhabitants, only drifting bands of buffalo hunters. Raids were made into the Texas Panhandle, the western line being a few miles east of their camp. The fat steers stolen from the LX and LIT ranges on the Canadian River. These herds of stolen steers were driven to Tularosa in Doniana County, New Mexico, and turned over to Pat Coughlin, the king of Tularosa, who had a contract to furnish beef to the U.S. soldiers at Fort Stanton. Pat Coughlin had made a deal with Billy the Kid to buy all the steers he could steal in the Texas Panhandle and deliver to him in Tularosa. 
In January 1880, the kid added another notch to the handle of his pistol as a man-killer. He and a crowd of the Chisholm Cowboys were celebrating in Bob Hargrove's saloon in Fort Sumner. A bad man from Texas by the name of Joe Grant was filling his hide full of kill-me-quick whiskey in the Hargrove saloon. Grant pulled a fine ivory-handled Colt's pistol from the scabbard of a cowboy named Finnan, putting his own pistol in place of it. Here, the kid asked Grant to let him look at this beautiful ivory-handled pistol. The request was granted. Then the kid revolved the cylinder and saw that there were two empty chambers. He let the hammer down so that the two first attempts to shoot would be failures. Now the pretty pistol was handed back to Grant, and he stuck it in his scabbard. A little later, Grant stepped behind the bar so as to face the crowd, and jerking his pistol, he began knocking glasses off the bar with it. Eyeing Billy the Kid, he remarked, Pard, I'd kill a man quicker than you will for the whiskey. The Kid accepted the challenge. Grant fired at the Kid, but the hammer struck on an empty chamber. Now the Kid planted a ball between Grant's eyes, and Grant fell over dead. At the Bosque Grande on the Pecos River, the three Diedrich boys, Sam, Dan, and Mose, owned a ranch, which became quite a rendezvous for the kids and Tom Cooper's gangs. From here, the herds of stolen Panhandle Texas cattle were started across the waterless desert to the foot of the Capitan Mountains, a distance of about 100 miles. Here, Dave Rudabaugh, who had the previous fall killed the jailer in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and trying to liberate his friend, Webb, joined Billy the Kid's gang. Also, Billy Wilson and Tom Pickett joined the party, and their time was spent stealing cattle and horses. In the year 1879, rich gold ore had been struck on Baxter Mountain, three miles from White Oak Spring, about 30 miles north of Lincoln, and the new town of White Oaks was established, with a population of about 1,000 souls. The kid had many friends in this hoorah mining camp. He had shot up the town, and, as usual, was wanted by the law officers. On November 23, 1880, the kid celebrated his birthday in White Oaks, undercover among friends. On riding out of town with his gang after dark, he took one friendly shot, at Deputy Sheriff Jim Woodland, who was standing out in front of the Pioneer Saloon. The chances are he had no intention of shooting Woodland, as he was a warm friend to his chum, Tom O'Folliard, who was riding by his side. O'Folliard and Jim Woodland had come to New Mexico from Texas together a few years previous. This shot woke up Deputy Sheriffs Carlisle and Bell, who fired parting shots at the gang as they galloped out of town. The next day, a posse was made up of the leading citizens of White Oaks, with Deputy Sheriff Johnny Hudgens and Jim Carlisle in command. They followed the trail of the outlaw gang to Coyote Spring, where they came on to the gang in camp. Shots were exchanged. Billy the Kid had sprung onto his horse, which was immediately shot out from under him. When the Kid's gang fired on the posse, Johnny Hudgens' horse fell over dead, shot in the head. The weather was bitter cold and snow lay on the ground. Without overcoat or gloves, Billy the Kid rushed for the hills a foot after his horse fell. The rest of the gang had become separated and each one looked out for himself. In the outlaw's camp, 
the posse found a good supply of grub and plunder. Jim Carlyle appropriated the kid's gloves and put them on his hands. No doubt they were the real cause of his death later. With Billy the Kid's saddle, overcoat, and other plunder found in the outlaw's camp, the posse returned to White Oaks, arriving there about dark. It would seem from all accounts that Billy the Kid trailed the posse into White Oaks, where he found shelter at the Diedrich and West livery stable. He was seen on the street during the night. On November 27th, a posse of White Oak citizens under command of Jim Carlisle and Johnny Hudgens rode to the Jim Great House Road Ranch about 40 miles north, arriving there before daylight. Their horses were secreted and they made a breastworks of logs and brush so as to cover the ranch house, which was known to be a rendezvous of the kids' gang. After daylight, the cook came out of the house with a nose bag and ropes to hunt the horses which had been hobbled the evening before. The cook, Steck, was captured by the posse behind the breastworks. He confessed that the kid and his gang were in the house. Now Steck was sent to the house with a note to the kid demanding his surrender. The reply the kid sent back by Steck read, You can only take me a corpse. The proprietor of the ranch, Jim Greathouse, accompanied Steck back to the posse behind the logs. Jimmy Carlisle suggested that he go to the house unarmed and have a talk with the kid. Hudgens wouldn't agree to this until after Greathouse said he would remain to guarantee Carlisle's safe return, that if the kid should kill Carlisle, they could take his life. A time limit was set for Carlisle's return, or Greathouse would be killed. This was written on a note and sent by Steck to the kid. When Carlisle entered the saloon in the front part of the log building, the kid greeted him in a friendly manner. But seeing his gloves sticking out of Carlisle's coat pocket, he grabbed them saying, What in the heck are you doing with my gloves? Of course, this brought back the misery he had endured without gloves after the posse raided their camp at Coyote Spring. He invited Carlisle up to the bar to take his last drink on earth, as he said he intended to kill him when the whiskey was down. After Carlisle had drained his glass, the kid pulled his pistol and told him to say his prayers before he fired. <laughs> With a laugh, the kid put up his pistol, saying, Why, Jimmy, I wouldn't kill you. Let's all take another friendly drink. Now the time was spent singing and dancing. Every time the gang took a drink... Carlisle had to join them in a social glass. The kid afterwards told friends that he had no intention of killing Carlisle, that he had just wanted to detain him till after dark so they could make a dash for liberty. The time had just expired when the posse were to kill Jim Greathouse, if Carlisle was not back. At that moment, a man behind the breastwork fired a shot at the house. Carlisle supposed this shot had killed Greathouse, which would result in his own death. He leapt for the glass window, taking the sash and all with him. The kid fired a bullet into him. When he struck the ground, he began crawling away on his hands and knees as he was badly wounded. Now, the kid finished him with a well-aimed shot from his pistol. The men behind the logs were witnesses to this murder, as they could see Carlisle crawling away from the window, 
Now they opened fire with a vengeance on the building. The gang had previously piled sacks of grain and flour against the doors to keep out the bullets. In the excitement, Jim Greathouse slipped away from the posse and ran through the woods. Finding one of his own hobbled ponies, he mounted him and rode away. After dark, the posse concluded to return to White Oaks, as they were cold and hungry. They had brought no grub with them, and they dared not build a fire to keep warm for fear of being shot by the gang. A few hours later, the kid and gang made a break for liberty, intending to fight the posse to a finish, not knowing that the officers had departed. All night, the gang waded through the deep snow afoot. They arrived at Mr. Spence's ranch at daylight and ate a hearty breakfast. They continued their journey towards Anton Chico on the Pecos River. About daylight that morning, Will Hudgens, Johnny Hurley, and Jim Brent made up a large posse and started to the Great House Road Ranch. Arriving there, they found the place vacated. The buildings were set afire. Then the journey continued on the gang's trail in the deep snow. A highly respected citizen by the name of Spence had established a road ranch on a cutoff road between White Oaks and Las Vegas. The gang's trail led up to this ranch, and Mr. Spence acknowledged cooking breakfast for them. Now Mr. Spence was dragged to a tree with a rope around his neck to hang him. Many of the posse protested against the hanging of Spence, and his life was spared, but revenge was taken by burning up his buildings. The kid's trail was now followed into a rough, hilly country, and there abandoned. Then, the posse returned to White Oaks. In Anton Chico, the kid and his party stole horses and saddles and rode down the Pecos River. A few days later, Pat Garrett, the new sheriff of Lincoln County, arrived in Anton Chico from Fort Sumner to make up a posse to run down the kid and his gang. At this time, the writer, myself, and Bob Roberson had arrived in Anton Chico from Tascosa, Texas with a crew of fighting cowboys to help run down the kid and put a stop to the stealing of Panhandle, Texas cattle. I had charge of five warriors, James H. East, Cal Polk, Lee Hall, Frank Clifford, and Lon Chambers. We were armed to the teeth. We had four large mules to draw the mess wagon driven by the Mexican cook Francisco. Bob Roberson was in charge of another five riders and another mess wagon. At our camp west of Anton Chico, Pat Garrett met us, and we agreed to loan him a few of our warriors. The rider turned over to him three men, Jim East, Lon Chambers, and Lee Hall. Bob Roberson turned over to him three cowboys, Tom Emery, Bob Williams, and Louis Bozeman. We then continued our journey to White Oaks in a raging snowstorm. Pat Garrett started down the Pecos River with his crew, consisting of our six cowboys, his brother-in-law, Barney Mason, and Frank Stewart, who had been acting as detective for the Panhandle Cattlemen's Association. At Fort Sumner, Pat Garrett deputized Charlie Rudolph and a few Mexican friends to join the crowd, which now numbered about 13 men. Finding that the kid and party had been in Fort Sumner and had made the old abandoned United States Hospital building where lived Charlie Beaudry and his Mexican wife their headquarters, Pat Garrett concluded to camp there. He figured that the outlaws would return and visit Mrs. Charlie Beaudry, 
whose husband was one of the outlaw band. In order to get a true record of the capture of Billy the Kid and gang, the author wrote to James H. East of Douglas, Arizona for the facts. Jim East is the only known living participant in that tragic event. His reputation for honesty and truthfulness is above par wherever he is known. He served eight years as sheriff of Oldham County, Texas at Tascosa and was city marshal for several years in Douglas, Arizona. Herewith, his letter to the writer is printed in full. Dated May 1, 1920. Dear Charlie, Your letter of the 29th received and contents noted. I will try to answer your questions. But you know, after a lapse of 40 years, one's memory may slip a cog. First, we recorded in the old government hospital building in Fort Sumner, the night of the first fight. Lon Chambers was on guard. Our horses were in Pete Maxwell's stable. Sheriff Pat Garrett, Tom Emery, Bob Williams, and Barney Mason were playing poker on a blanket on the floor. I had just lain down my blanket in the corner when Chambers ran in and told us that the kid and his gang were coming. It was about 11 o'clock at night. We all grabbed our guns and stepped out in the yard. Just then, the kid's men came around the corner of the old hospital building in front of the room occupied by Charlie Beaudry's woman and her mother. Tom O'Folliard was riding in the lead. Garrett yelled out, Throw up your hands! But O'Folliard jerked his pistol. Then the shooting commenced. It being dark, the shooting was at random. Tom O'Folliard was shot through the body, near the heart, and lost control of his horse. Kidd and the rest of his men whirled their horses and ran up the road. O'Folliard's horse came up near us, and Tom said, Don't shoot anymore. I'm dying. We helped him off his horse and took him in and laid him down on my blanket. Pat and the other boys then went back to playing poker. I got Tom some water. He then cussed Garrett and died in about 30 minutes after being shot. The horse that Dave Rudabaugh was riding was shot, but not killed instantly. We found the dead horse the next day on the trail, about one or so miles east of Fort Sumner. After Dave's horse fell down from the loss of blood, he got up behind Billy Wilson and they all went to the Wilcox's ranch that night. The next morning, a big snowstorm set in and put out their trail, so we laid over in Sumner and buried Tom O'Folliard. The next night, after the fight, it cleared off, and about midnight, Mr. Wilcox rode in and reported to us that the kid, Dave Rudabaugh, Billy Wilson, Tom Pickett, and Charlie Beaudry had eaten supper at his ranch about dark, and then pulled out for the little rock house at Stinkin' Spring. So we saddled up our horses at about one o'clock in the morning. We got to the rock house just before daylight. Our horses were left with Frank Stewart and some of the other boys under guard while Garrett took Lee Hall, Tom Emery, and myself with him. We crawled up the arroyo to within about 30 feet of the door, where we laid down in the snow. There was no window in this house and only one door, which we could cover with our guns. The kid had taken his race mare into the house, but the three other horses were standing near the door, hitched by ropes to the Vega poles. Just as day began to show, Charlie Beaudry came out to feed his horse. Garrett told him to throw up his hands, but he grabbed at his six-shooter. Then Garrett and Lee Hall both shot him in the breast. Emery and I didn't shoot, for there was no use to waste ammunition then.
Charlie turned and went into the house, and we heard the kid say to him, Charlie, you're done for. Go out and see if you can get some of them SOBs before you die. Charlie then walked out with his hand on his pistol, but was unable to shoot. We didn't shoot, for we could see that he was about dead. He stumbled and fell on Lee Hall. He started to speak, but the words died with him. Now Garrett, Lee, Tom, and I fired several shots at the ropes which held the horses and cut them loose, all but one horse which was halfway in the door. Garrett shot him down, and that blocked the door so the kid could not make a wolf dart on his mare. We then held a medicine talk with the kid, but of course couldn't see him. Garrett asked him to give up, and Billy answered, Go the hell, you long-legged son of a... Well, you know. Garrett then told Tom Emery and I to go around to the other side of the house as we could hear them trying to pick out a porthole. Then we took it, time about, guarding the house all day. When nearly sundown, we saw a white handkerchief on a stick poked out of the chimney. Some of us crawled up the arroyo near enough to talk to Billy. He said he had no show to get away and wanted to surrender if we would give our word not to fire into them when they came out. We gave the promise, and they came out with their hands up, but that traitor Barney Mason raised his gun to shoot the kid. When Lee Hall and I covered Barney and told him to drop his gun, which he did. Now, we took the prisoners and the body of Charlie Beaudry to the Wilcox Ranch, where we stayed until the next day, then to Fort Sumner, where we delivered the body of Beaudry to his wife. Garrett asked Louis Bozeman and I to take Beaudry into the house to his wife. As we started in with him, she struck me over the head with a branding iron, and I had to drop Charlie at her feet. The poor woman was crazy with grief. I always regretted the death of Charlie Beaudry, for he was a brave man and true to his friends to the last. Before we left Fort Sumner with the prisoners for Santa Fe, the kid asked Garrett to let Tom Emery and I go along as guards, which, as you know, he did. The kid made me a present of his Winchester rifle, but old Beaver Smith made such a roar about an account, he said Billy owed him that at the request of Billy, I gave old Beaver the gun. I wish now I had kept it. On the road to Santa Fe, the kid told Garrett this, Those who live by the sword, die by the sword. Part of that prophecy has come true. Pat Garrett got his, but I'm still alive. I must close... You may use any quotations from my letters, for they are true. Good luck to you. Mrs. East joins me in best wishes. Sincerely yours, James H. East. The author had previously written to Jim East about Billy the Kid's sweetheart, Miss Dulcinea Toboso. Here is a quotation from his answer of April 26, 1920. Your recollections of Dulcinea del Toboso about tallies with the way I remember her. She was rather stout, built like her mother, but not so dark. After we captured Billy the Kid at Arroyo Tivan, we took him, Dave Rudabaugh, Billy Wilson, and Tom Pickett, and also the dead body of Charlie Beaudry to Fort Sumner. After dinner, Mrs. Toboso sent over an old Navajo woman to ask Pat Garrett to let Billy come over to the house and see them before we take him to Santa Fe. So Garrett told Lee Hall and I to guard Billy and Dave Rudabaugh over to DeBoso's, Dave and Billy being shackled together. 
As we went over, the lock on Dave's leg came loose, and Billy, being very superstitious, said, That is a bad sign. I will likely die, and Dave will go free. Which, as you know, proved true. When we went into the house, only Mrs. Toboso, Dulcinea, and the old Navajo woman were there. Mrs. Toboso asked Hall and I to let Billy and Dulcinea go into another room and talk a while. But we did not do so, for it was only a stall of Billy's to make a run for liberty. And the old lady and the girl were willing to further the scheme. The lovers embraced, and she gave Billy one of those soul kisses the novelists tell us about. Tell it being time to hit the trail for Vegas, we had to pull them apart, much against our wishes. For you know all the world loves a lover. It was December 23, 1880, when the kid and gang, Dave Rudabaugh, Tom Pickett, and Billy Wilson were captured, and Charlie Beaudry killed. The prisoners were taken to the nearest railroad at Las Vegas, New Mexico, where a mob tried to take them away from the posse to string them up. They were placed in the county jail at Santa Fe, the capital of the territory of New Mexico, as the penitentiary was not yet completed. Dave Rudabaugh was tied and sentenced to death for the killing of the jailer in Las Vegas. Later, he made his escape and has never been heard of since. In the latter part of February 1881, Billy the Kid was taken to Mesilla to be tried for the murder of Buckshot Roberts at Blazer Sawmill. Judge Bristol presided over the district court and assigned Ira Leonard to defend the kid. He was acquitted for the murder of Roberts. In the same term of court, the kid was put on trial for the murder of Sheriff William Brady in April 1878. This time he was convicted and sentenced to hang on May 13, 1881 in the courthouse yard at Lincoln. Deputy United States Marshal Bob Olinger and Deputy Sheriff Dave Wood drove the kid in a covered wagon back to Fort Stanton and turned him over to Sheriff Pat Garrett. As Lincoln had no suitable jail, an upstairs room in the large adobe courthouse was selected as the kid's last home on earth, as the officer supposed, but fate decided otherwise. Bob Olinger and J.W. Bell were selected to guard Billy the Kid until the time came for shutting off his windpipe with a rope. The room selected for the kid's home was large, and in the northeast corner of the building, upstairs, there were two windows in it, one on the east side and the other on the north, fronting Main Street. In order to get out of this room, one had to pass through a hall into another room, where a back stairs led down to the rear yard. In a room in the southwest corner of the building, the surplus firearms were kept in a closet or armory. One room was assigned as the sheriff's private office. The kid's furniture consisted of a pair of steel handcuffs, steel shackles for his legs, a stool, and a cot. Bob Olinger, the chief guard, was a large, powerful, middle-aged man with a mean disposition. He and the kid were bitter enemies on account of having killed warm friends of each other during the bloody Lincoln County War. It is said that Olinger shot one of Billy the Kid's friends to death while holding his right hand with Olinger's left. After this local war had ended, the fella stepped up to Olinger to shake hands to bury the hatchet. Olinger extended his left hand 
and grabbed the man's right hand, holding it fast until he shot him to death. Of course, this cowardly act left a scar on Billy the Kid's heart, which only death could heal. J.W. Bell was a tall, slender man of middle age with a large knife scar across one cheek. He had come over from San Antonio, Texas. He held a grudge against the kid for the killing of his friend, Jimmy Carlisle. Otherwise, there was no enmity between them. In the latter part of April, cowboy Charlie Wall had four Mexicans helping him irrigate an alfalfa field above the Mexican village of Tularosa on Tularosa River. A large band of Tularosa Mexicans appeared on the scene one morning to prevent young Wall from using his water for his thirsty alfalfa. When the smoke of battle cleared away, four Tularosa Mexicans lay dead on the ground and Charlie Wall had two bullet wounds in his body, though they were not dangerous wounds. Now to prevent being mobbed by the angry citizens of Tularosa, which was just over the line in Doniana County, Wall and his helpers made a run on horseback for Lincoln to surrender to Sheriff Pat Garrett. The sheriff allowed them to wear their pistols and to sleep in the old jail. At mealtimes, they accompanied either Bob Olinger or J.W. Bell to the Ellis Hotel across the main street, which ran east and west through town. Charlie Wall did his loafing while recovering from his bullet wounds in the room where the kid was kept. On the morning of April 28, 1881, Sheriff Pat Garrett prepared to leave for White Oaks, 35 miles north, to have a scaffold made to hang the kid on. Before starting, he went into the room where the kid sat on a stool guarded by Olinger, who was having a friendly chat with Charlie Wall, the man who gave the writer the full details of the affair. J.W. Bell also present in the room. Garrett remarked to the two guards, Say, boys, you must keep a close watch on the kid, as he has only a few more days to live and might make a break for liberty. Bob Olinger answered, Don't worry, Pat. We'll watch him like a goat. Now Olinger stepped into the other room and got his double-barrel shotgun. With the gun in his hand, looking towards the kid, he said, There are 18 buckshot in each barrel, and I reckon the man who gets them will feel it. With a smile, Billy the Kid remarked, You may be the one to get them yourself. Now Olinger put the gun back in the armory, locking the door, putting the key in his pocket. Then Garrett left for White Oaks. About five o'clock in the evening, Bob Olinger took Charlie Wall and the other four armed prisoners to the Ellis Hotel across the street for supper. Bell was left to guard the kid. According to the story, Billy the Kid told Mrs. Charlie Beaudry and other friends after his escape, he had been starving himself so that he could slip his left hand out of the steel cuff. The guards thought he had lost his appetite from worry about his approaching death. J.W. Bell sat on a chair facing the kid several paces away. He was reading a newspaper. The kid slipped his left hand out of the cuff and made a spring for the guard, striking him over the head with the steel cuff. Bell threw up his hands to shield him from another blow. Then the kid jerked Bell's pistol out of its scabbard. Now Bell ran out of the door and received a bullet from his own pistol. The body of Bell tumbled down the back stairs, falling on the jailer, a German by the name of Geis, who was sitting at the foot of the stairs. Of course, Geis stampeded. 
He flew out of the gate toward the Ellis Hotel. On hearing the shot, Bob Olinger and the five armed prisoners got up from the supper table and ran to the street. Charlie Wall and the four Mexicans stopped on the sidewalk, while Olinger continued to run toward the courthouse. After killing Bell, the kid broke in the door of the armory, secured Olinger's shotgun, then he hobbled to the open window facing the hotel. When in the middle of the street, Olinger met the stampeded jailer, and as he passed, he said, Bell has killed the kid. This caused Olinger to quit running. He walked the balance of the way. When directly under the window, the kid struck his head out saying, Hello, Bob. Olinger looked up and saw his own shotgun pointed at him. He said in a voice loud enough to be heard by Wall and the other prisoners across the street, Yes, he has killed me too. These words were hardly out of the guard's mouth when the kid fired a charge of buckshot into his heart. Now Billy the Kid hobbled back to the armory and buckled around his waist two belts of cartridges and two Colt's pistols. When taking a Winchester rifle in his hand, he hobbled back to the shotgun, which he picked up. He then went out onto the small porch in front of the building. Reaching over the balusters with the shotgun, he fired the other charge into Olinger's body. Then breaking the shotgun in two across the balusters, he threw the pieces at the corpse, saying, Take that, you SOB. You'll never follow me with that gun again. Now the kid hailed the jailer, old man Geis, and told him to throw up a file, which he did. Then the chain holding his feet close together was filed in two. When his legs were free, the kid danced a jig on the little front porch, where many people, who had run out to the sidewalk across the street on hearing the shots, were witness to this free show which couldn't be beat for money. Geis was hailed again and told to saddle up the deputy county clerk's black pony and bring him out on the street. The black pony had formerly belonged to the kid. When the pony stood on the street, ready for the last act, the kid went down the back stairs, stepping over the dead body of Bell, and started to mount. Being encumbered with the weight of the pistols, two belts full of ammunition, and the rifle, the kid was thrown to the ground when the pony began bucking. Now, the kid faced the crowd across the street, holding the rifle ready for action. Charlie Wall told the rider that he could have killed him with his pistol, but that he wanted to see him escape. Many other men in the crowd felt the same way, no doubt. When the pony was brought back, the kid gave Geis his rifle to hold while he mounted. The rifle being handed back to him when he was securely seated in the saddle... Then he dug the pony in the sides with his heels and galloped west. At the edge of town, he waved his hat over his head, yelling, Three cheers for Billy the Kid! And now the curtain went down, for the time being. A few days after the kid's escape, Billy Burt's black pony returned to Lincoln dragging a rope. He had either escaped or been turned loose by the kid. The next we hear of the kid he visited friends in Las Tablas and stole a horse from Andy Richardson. From there, he headed to Fort Sumner to see his sweetheart, Miss Dulcinea. It was said he tried to persuade her to run away with him and to go to old Mexico and live in happiness ever afterward. But that little sweet Dulce refused to leave her mama. 
the kid found shelter and concealment in the home of Mrs. Charlie Beaudry and her mother. One night, a few weeks after his escape, the writer was within whispering distance of Billy the Kid. Myself and a crowd of cowboys had attended a Mexican dance. Mrs. Charlie Beaudry was there, dressed like a young princess. She captured the heart of the author, so that he danced with her often and escorted her to the midnight supper. About three o'clock in the morning, the dance broke up and the writer escorted the pretty young widow, Mrs. Charlie Beaudry, to her adobe home. At the front door, I almost got down on my knees, pleading for her to let me into the house and talk a while. But no use. She insisted that her mother would object. About six months later, in the fall of 1881, after the kid had been killed, the writer was in Fort Sumner again and attended a dance with Mrs. Charlie Beaudry. Now she explained the reasons for her not letting me enter the house. She said at the time, Billy the kid, who was hiding at her home, was on the other side of the door listening to our conversation, that he recognized my voice. Here Mrs. Beaudry told me the facts of the case, of how Billy the kid met his death, bareheaded and barefooted with a butcher knife in his hand. While in hiding in Fort Sumner, the kid stole a saddle horse from Mr. Montgomery Bell, who had ridden into town from his ranch 50 miles above on the Rio Pecos. Bell supposed the horse had been ridden off by a common Mexican thief. He hired Barney Mason and a Mr. Curington to go with him to hunt the animal. They started down the stream, Bell keeping on one side of the river, while Mason and Curington headed for a sheep camp in the foothills. Riding up to the tent in the sheep camp, the kid stepped out with his Winchester rifle and hailed them. Barney Mason was armed to the teeth and was on a swift horse. He had on a new pair of spurs and nearly wore them out making his getaway. Mr. Curington rode up to his friend, Billy the Kid, and had a friendly chat. The kid told Curington to tell Montgomery Bell that he would return his horse or pay for him. When Currington reported the matter to Mr. Bell, he was satisfied and searched no more for the animal. After the kid's escape from Lincoln, Sheriff Pat Garrett laid low and tried to find out the kid's whereabouts through his friends and associates. In March 1881, a deputy United States Marshal by the name of John W. Poe arrived in the booming mining camp of White Oaks. He had been sent to New Mexico by the Cattlemen's Association of the Texas Panhandle. Cattle King Charlie Goodnight, being the president of the association, had selected Mr. Poe as the proper man to put a stop to the stealing of panhandled cattle by Billy the Kid and his gang. After the kid's escape, Pat Garrett went to White Oaks and deputized John W. Poe to assist him in rounding up the kid. From now on, Mr. Poe made trips out in the mountains trying to locate the young outlaw. The kid's best friends argued that he was nobody's fool and would not remain in the United States when the old Mexico border was so near. They didn't realize that little Cupid was shooting the kid's tender young heart full of love darts straight from the heart of pretty little Miss Dulcinea del Toboso of Fort Sumner. Early in July, Pat Garrett received a letter from an acquaintance by the name of Brazil, in Fort Sumner, advising him that the kid was hanging around there. 
Garrett at once wrote Brazil to meet him about dark on the night of July the 13th at the mouth of the Taiban Arroyo below Fort Sumner. Now the sheriff took his trusted deputy, John Poe, and rode to Roswell on the Pecos. There they were joined by one of Mr. Garrett's fearless cowboy deputies, Kip McKinney, who had been raised near Uvalde, Texas. Together, the three law officers rode up the river towards Fort Sumner, a distance of 80 miles. They arrived at the mouth of the Taiban Arroyo about an hour after dark on July the 13th, but Brazil was not there to meet them. The night was spent sleeping in their saddle blankets. The next morning, Garrett sent Mr. Poe, who was a stranger in the country, and for that reason would not be suspicioned, into Fort Sumner, five miles north, to find out what he could on the sly about the kid's presence. From Fort Sumner, he was going to go to the sunny side, six miles north, to interview a merchant by the name of Mr. Rudolph. Then, when the moon was rising, to meet Garrett and McKinney at La Punta de la Glorieta, about four miles north of Fort Sumner. Failing to find out anything of importance about the kid, John Poe met his two companions at the appointed place, and they rode into Fort Sumner. It was about 11 o'clock, and the moon was shining brightly when the officers rode into an old orchard and concealed their horses. Now the three continued afoot to the home of Pete Maxwell, a wealthy stockman who was a friend to both Garrett and the kid. He lived in a long, one-story adobe building, which had been the U.S. officers' quarters when the soldiers were stationed there. The house fronted south and had a wide covered porch in front. The grassy front yard was surrounded by a picket fence. As Pat Garrett had courted his wife and married her in this town, he knew every foot of the ground, even to Pete Maxwell's private bedroom. On reaching the picket gate near the corner room which Pete Maxwell always occupied, Garrett told his two deputies to wait there until after he had a talk with Pete Maxwell. The night being hot, Pete Maxwell's door stood wide open and Garrett walked in. A short time previous, Billy the Kid had arrived from a sheep camp out in the hills. Back of the Maxwell home lived a Mexican servant who was a warm friend of the kid. Here, Billy the Kid always found late newspapers placed there by loving hands for his special benefit. This old servant had gone to bed. The kid lit a lamp and then pulled off his coat and boots. Now he glanced over the papers to see if his name was mentioned. Finding nothing of interest in the newspapers, he asked the old servant to get up and cook him some supper as he was very hungry. Getting up, the servant told him there was no meat in the house. The kid remarked that he would go and get some from Pete Maxwell. Now he picked up a butcher's knife from the table to cut the meat with and started barefooted and bareheaded. The kid passed within a few feet of the end of the porch where sat Johnny Poe and Kip McKinney. The latter had raised up when his spur rattled, which attracted the kid's attention. At the same moment, Mr. Poe stood up in the small open gateway leading from the street to the end of the porch. They supposed the man coming towards them, only partly dressed, was a servant or possibly Pete Maxwell. The kid pulled his pistol, and so had John Poe, who by that time was almost within an arm's reach of the kid. With pistol pointing at Poe, at the same time asking in Spanish, ¿Quién es? 
Who is that? He backed into Pete Maxwell's room. He had repeated the above question several times. On entering the room, Billy the Kid walked up to within a few feet of Pat Garrett, who was sitting on Maxwell's bed, and asked, Who are they, Pete? Now discovering that a man sat on Pete's bed, the kid, with raised pistol pointed towards the bed, began backing across the room. Pete Maxwell whispered to the sheriff, That's him, Pat. By this time, the kid had backed to a streak of moonlight coming through the south window, asking, Quien es? Garrett raised his pistol and fired, then cocked the pistol again, and it went off accidentally, putting a hole in the ceiling. Now the sheriff sprang out of the door onto the porch, where stood his two deputies with drawn pistols. Soon after, Pete Maxwell ran out and came very near getting a ball from Poe's pistol. Garrett struck the pistol upward, saying, Don't shoot Maxwell! A lighted candle was secured from the mother of Pete Maxwell, who occupied a nearby room, and the dead body of Billy the Kid was found stretched out on his back with a bullet wound in his breast, just above the heart. At the right hand lay a Colt's forty-one caliber pistol, and at his left a butcher knife. Now the native people began to collect, many of them being warm friends of the kids. Garrett allowed them to take the body across the street to a carpenter shop where it had been laid out on a bench. Then lighted candles were placed around the remains of what was once the bravest and coolest young outlaw who ever trod the face of the earth. The next day, this once mother's darling was buried by the side of his chum, Tom O'Folliard, in the old military cemetery. He was killed at midnight, July 14, 1881, being just 21 years, 7 months, and 21 days of age. He had killed 21 men, not including Indians, which he said didn't count as human beings. A few months after the killing of the kid, a man was coining money showing Billy the Kid's trigger finger, preserved in alcohol. Seeing sensational accounts of it in the newspaper, Sheriff Garrett had the body dug up, but found his trigger finger was still attached to the right hand. In closing, I wish to state that with all his faults, Billy the Kid had many noble traits. In White Oaks, during the winter of 1881, the writer talked with a man who actually shed tears in telling of how he lay almost to the point of death with smallpox in an old abandoned shack in Fort Sumner when the kid found him. A good supply of money was given by the kid and a wagon and team hired to haul him to Las Vegas where medical attention could be secured. Since the killing of the kid, Kip McKinney had died with his boots off while Pat Garrett died with them on, being shot and killed on the road between Tularosa and Las Cruces. Hence, the only man now living who saw the curtain go down on the last act of Billy the Kid's eventful life is John W. Poe. At the present writing, a wealthy banker on the beautiful little city of Roswell, New Mexico. He has served one term as sheriff of Lincoln County and has helped to change the blood-spattered country from an outlaw's paradise to a land of happy, peaceful homes. Peace to William H. Bonney's ashes is the author's prayer. The End 
Well, that concludes our history of Billy the Kid by Charlie Seringo. All right, looks like we got a we got a new review from Kirk RV8. Great. Really enjoying this podcast. Love the West and its history. Thank you, Kirk RV8. And keep sending us reviews. Love those five-star ratings. So anyway, thanks for sharing with me. I appreciate you, and uh, we'll hear you next week. Bueno, bye. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try.